0: Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? And why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us.
1: Lord, as we come to the end of the book of Lamentations, as we come to the end of our series, and as we come in certain ways to the end of Lent, we ask, Lord, that you uh, would speak to us again from your word, and that we... um, not as an abstraction, but as reality, would learn the power of lament, this form of prayer that you've given us to pour out our hearts to you like water. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So for the last uh, four weeks, this is the fifth week, uh, we've been talking about the book of Lamentations. Five weeks, five chapters, it works out very nicely. And then this coming Sunday, a week from now, is... Palm Sunday, and then the Sunday after that is Easter. So we are really coming toward the end of the Lenten season and turning our hearts toward that great and uh, holy week of Jesus' journey to the cross on our behalf and his journey through death out the other side to resurrection. So as we close the book of Lamentations, I want to focus on this chapter but also tie together some of the things that we've talked about throughout this series and also to point forward to what's coming, what's coming next week, what's coming towards Easter. Uh, You may not know that before I was in the priesting gig, um, I used to teach literature. I used to teach high school English for three years and then while I was in seminary, I taught freshman composition at one of the local uh, community colleges here in Dallas and something that I always dreaded but also enjoyed was teaching poetry (laughs) Uh, because I love poetry but it's also a very difficult thing to do because in teaching it you can suck all the life out of it. Um, A poem is what it is and should be taken as it is as a whole and it's the same here with the book of Lamentations, this final poem. Um, So I'm praying that I don't suck the life out of it. (laughs) That what I have to say will turn you towards the text and not away from it. And as I was thinking about this idea of talking about poetry, I was reminded of something I was told in the first day of uh, biblical interpretation. This is a story of a professor and a student, a professor of biology, he's got a graduate student. He comes into the classroom and the professor puts before the student a tray and it has a fish on it. And the professor says, look at the fish. Okay. Look at the fish and I'll be back. So, he's looking at the fish. The professor comes back, says, what do you see? Like, well, it has, the eyes are on the side of its head. Okay, good. Look at the fish. Leaves the room. Comes back a little while later. He says, what do you see? Well, there's scales and I notice these fins and this, that, and the other. Okay, good. Look at the fish. Leaves the room again. And this goes on for quite some time. Finally, the professor comes back in, says, what do you see? And the student says, the fish is beautiful. Now he's seen the fish for what it is. He sees all the pieces come together as a whole. That's the power of poetry. And we're meant to see it as a whole. Um... And our analysis of it and our understanding of it is meant to serve the beauty of the language and the images that are given to us. So I say all of that as we turn to chapter five, which is a poem like the four previous chapters, but it's different. And it's different in some ways that are interesting. For one, it's a different voice. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. There's a pivot from the first person singular to the first person plural. We, this is a communal lament. This is a choir singing the community's lament in the first person plural. This is not just what has befallen one person, this is what has befallen the people of God. So the voice is different, the pattern is different the first four chapters were acrostic, where you have these lines of poetry that each correspond to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This one does not follow the acrostic pattern, but there are still twenty-two lines that correspond to the Hebrew alphabet. That's interesting. The pattern is different. The rhythm is different. Remember, we talked when I talked about chapter two—the rhythm of poetry. Do you remember scanning poetry in high school? The beats—you know—you get your Shakespeare, your iambic pentameter, all of that the first four poems are written what the scholars call a limping pattern or it's dirge-like that the actual language reflects this stumbling along I can't quite get the words out but the rhythm is different here because the protest has been raised to a higher degree and I would say in addition to there being a different voice a different pattern, a different rhythm there's a different urgency look at the directness of verse one Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace, exclamation point. There's a directness in addressing the Lord. Remember, look, see. They're saying, the community is saying to God, pay attention to us. Pay attention to what has happened to us. Remember us, O Lord, not in an actual way that God has forgotten them, but in their experience, it feels like God has forgotten them. And there are these pivot moments in the history of the people of God where they ask, the people of God ask God to remember. To remember. The beginning of the Exodus story is a moment when the people are crying out, Lord, do you remember that you promised that we would be a great people not, enslaved in Egypt, but in our own land? Do you remember that? Remember God. And here we have a similar command. They're in a way commanding God. Remember, look, see, pay attention. And what are they asking God to pay attention to? On their first few verses, they're recounting how their material circumstances have changed because the Babylonians have come in. And in the time leading up to the Babylonians coming in and sending them off to exile. Their material circumstances have changed. Their inheritance has been turned over to strangers. They are like orphans and fatherless. And then this image in verse four, we must pay for the water we drink and the wood we get must be bought. That you're in a bad way then. If you're supposed to be in a land filled with milk and honey where all of it's for you and you're suddenly in a position where you're paying for water and for wood, then you're not in charge anymore. Someone else is in charge. Your material circumstances have changed in a fundamental way. But the heart of this poem is not that their material circumstances have changed, but their spiritual and relational circumstances have changed. Verse 17, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. They are experiencing the sickness of heart. And there's an acknowledgement of two levels of sin. First, in verse 7, the sins of their fathers, bearing the iniquities of those who have come before them. But also, in verse 16, the weight of their own sin. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. We've come from a line of previous generations who heard from the prophets were called to return to the Lord and they did not return to the Lord and neither did we and we are bearing the weight of their lack of repentance and our own lack of repentance. Their spiritual and relational circumstances have fundamentally changed and this is why their hearts are sick. And we see in verse 21, really, the key to everything, I would say. Restore to us, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. That's the fundamental insight. If we could be restored to God, that's what really matters. Restoration of relationship is the only true way back from exile, not the restoration of their material circumstances if they could be restored to God, that would make all the difference. In chapter two, we talked about this larger biblical pattern of exile and return. That from the garden onward, there's this rhythm of God's people turning away from him, God pursuing them, calling them back to himself. And that pattern plays out through the Old Testament and over the whole Bible as well. Here we have the exile writ large. Judah, the people of God, have been pushed out of the land and taken to Babylon. But they still understand that if their hearts would turn back to God, that would make all the difference in the world. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. What does restoration look like? It looks like being restored to relationship with God. Restore us to yourself. Renew our days. Do they truly repent? We don't know in the context of this book. Lamentations leaves it as an open question. It sort of lays it at our feet. What are we going to do? Are we going to return and respond? It's left as an open question. And in fact, the entire book, the very last verse of this book, can be and often is translated as a question. Here in the ESV, it's translated as a statement. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. But the Hebrew there and the grammar there could easily be translated like this. Have you actually rejected us? Are you exceedingly angry with us? Look at the fish the poem ends with a question. What does that tell us? I think it tells us something about ourselves. That these kinds of open questions are very difficult. Have you actually rejected us? Are you exceedingly angry with us? It's very difficult to allow the poem to land in that way because it's difficult to live with open questions, especially ones as raw and as real as that one. God, are you just done with us? Is it just over? In fact, when these verses are read in a Jewish liturgical context, it's often the case that they don't end the reading with this verse. They loop back to 21 and just read that again. (laughs) Restore us. That feels like the more natural ending. Restore us, Lord. That's where we want to land. And I don't blame them. It's a very human impulse. We don't like open questions. And yet, I think there's a gift for us here. Because the reality is that life is sometimes like an open question (laughs) that does not get answered. We don't always get the resolution we are looking for or the answer to the question we are asking. And especially when it comes to grief or painful things, there is no defined timeline. And whatever answer we might receive is maybe not much of an answer at all. But we're left with this open question. And on one level, I want this open question to remain open as an invitation In these verses and throughout this whole series, the invitation to us has been not just to learn about lament, but to try it, (laughs) which is what we attempted to do when we had our deeper uh, prayer night a few, or not this past Friday, but the previous Friday, we tried to lament together, to pour out our hearts like water before the Lord. And maybe you've heard this whole series and you're like, I, you know, maybe, maybe I should try this lament thing, but it's kind of overwhelming. Why? Well, what if I can't stop? <laughs> what if I start pouring out my heart like water, and it just keeps pouring? That's a scary question. I, I get that. And then, in the context that we're talking about, what if I start lamenting and my questions go unanswered? Sometimes that's the nature of grief though is that we get an answer but maybe not an answer to the question that we were asking. And we're not gonna necessarily get to that other answer until we go through the process. That's what we've been talking about this whole time is that there really is no way back. There's only a way forward. And until we bear witness from within our pain to the pain we are experiencing, which is what lament is, We can't move forward. But here's our impulse we want to know when it's going to be over. (laughs) It's just natural. There's an Old Testament scholar who's also a hospital chaplain named Leslie Allen. And he wrote a book on lamentations from the perspective of grief, which is super interesting. He sat in a lot of hospital rooms he's dealt with a lot of open and unanswered questions. He's been with people on the brink of death. And he says this about closure. He says the modern preoccupation with closure impatiently rushes the sufferer to a premature conclusion. Closure must be allowed to take its own time. We, he says, have a preoccupation with closure that impatiently rushes the sufferer to a premature conclusion. Sometimes we do that to ourselves. I just want to be done with this. I don't want to feel this any anyway, way anymore. It's too painful. It's too much. Sometimes the people around us are like, get over it. <laughs> it's, you've grieved long enough. You should be done with it. By the way, that's not helpful. Just so you know. It's like, uh, you know, quoting Romans 8 to people when something bad has happened. You know, God works everything to good. Great. (laughs) I'm so glad that you told me that. It's not always helpful. I've done it. I'm a pastor. You know, I want to find the verse. But sometimes we're doing that because we want the other person to move on. We want to impatiently rush them to a premature conclusion but closure must be allowed to take its own time. And this author, Leslie Allen, he goes to talk about people who've experienced grief. He talks about C.S. Lewis's book, um, A Grief Observed, and some other books like that, and his own experience as a chaplain. And he had this wonderful phrase that there's a point in every grieving process where you reach the end of the beginning. Meaning, We want to be at the beginning of the end, but sometimes you're just in the middle of it, and yet you've sensed that there's some pivot, that there's some hope, that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We've reached the end of the beginning. But we can't always know when that is going to be. And that, to me, is the power of this open question. Are you exceedingly angry with us? Have you utterly rejected us? It is such a powerful way for the book to end. Closure must be allowed to take its own time. Now, we also have to remember that Lamentations is not the only book in the Bible. Can you imagine if that was just the whole Bible? Like, oh, what do I do with this? (laughs) The book is situated within a broader Old Testament context where there is a return from exile. That within a few years, this will be uttered to the people of God who are in exile. Comfort, comfort my people. That they improbably, how did this happen? How did the geopolitical realities change so much that Babylon is on the decline and that we can come back to the land. How could that happen? And yet that's what happens in the history of God's people. Comfort, comfort my people. There is a way back from exile. Within the Old Testament itself, we have figures like Nehemiah and Ezra who lead the people of God after the exile. And yet even they have an open question. Because they build another temple. And you know, it's not as good as Solomon's temple. It's pretty good. But Solomon's temple was really good. And the Greeks are around and the Romans are still around. Are we really back from exile? Is this really what God promised us when he said, son of David will rule forever on the throne? So they're left in a way with the open questions still. But our question is, how does God come to answer the question, are you exceedingly angry with us? And have you rejected us forever? God's answer to that question is a person. And that person is the suffering servant. How does God answer the question, have you rejected us forever? He sends his son as the suffering servant. The one who experiences Exile, grief, loneliness, pain. Because there is a suffering servant, our experience of exile, our times of grief, however lonely, however confusing, however painful, can never be absolute. They can never be the final answer to the question. The message of the cross is that Christ was exiled for us on our behalf, that he goes to the utter limit of outer darkness and dereliction so that we don't ever have to in an ultimate sense. The message of the life and ministry of Jesus, especially the cross, is that there is no place that a human being can go where God in Christ has not gone before us, including through death and out the other side. Christians have understood the book of Lamentations as a prayer on the lips of Jesus. The time when the church reads these prayers is in Lent, is in Holy Week, is in the context of Jesus's cry to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those, and in his question, why have you forsaken me? God answers our question. Have you rejected us forever? No, you haven't. Because Jesus' lament, his dereliction are absolute so that our lament can be temporary. So we don't wanna hasten to the end. We don't want to come to a premature conclusion. Grief takes its time. We don't, we cannot take the sting out of suffering. Suffering is simply not the way that it's supposed to be. We can't just gloss it over and pretend that just because God can make good out of bad, that somehow that bad became good. The bad is always bad. Suffering is not the way that it's supposed to be. Dave's reminded of this, of this throughout the ser- this series. We were not made, initially designed to grieve in the way that we do, to lose people in the way that we do, to lose relationships. We weren't designed for that. Suffering is not good. Can I just say that? (laughs) Can you hear me? Suffering is not good. It's not. We have all these ways of trying to pretend like it is to take the sting out of it, but it's not good. It's just not. And the cross is the answer to that, too, that he suffers on our behalf. But that's the greatest travesty of all time is that when God comes in our midst, we crucify him. We'll experience that, The I think the jarring effect of that, we experience that on Palm Sunday every year when we read the Passion Narrative and we'll say as a crowd, crucify him. Because that's the two sides of our experience is that we cry out and pour our hearts out to God, but we're also those who say crucify him. It wasn't just those people in the crowd, it's us too. And yet he still goes willingly to die on our behalf. So the headline is, suffering is not good. Just because God can make good out of it says more about him than it does about the suffering itself. It says something about his power, his love, his determination to write things, to set things to right, not about the suffering itself. And one of the ways that we can say that suffering is not good is by lamenting, to bearing witness from within the pain. God's people in these verses, they know that they have sinned. They know that they're bearing the consequences of their own choices, but that doesn't mean that those experiences are good. Just because God can use it in a way to draw his people to himself Again, that says more about him than it does about suffering itself. So, where does this leave us? Some of us need the permission to sit with the open question. We've experienced all kinds of things over the last two years, both as a community, both individually. There's not a life that has not been touched in some fundamental way by this pandemic. By the economic fallout from this pandemic, by the political tensions that have come out of it, or personally, I don't know if anybody who doesn't know somebody, whether close or a degree or two away, who hasn't died, there's a lot of death that's happened around us. When will we be done grieving that? I don't have any idea. I don't know. And that's okay. We can leave that part as an open question. We don't need to push the timeline to a premature conclusion. And yet the backdrop to our grief is always the reality that Lamentations is not the only book in the Bible. (laughs) That it's situated always within a larger story and within the larger reality that Jesus is not one who comes as a conquering king, but one who comes as a suffering servant. That is the hope and the promise of Passion Week, that he lived among us as one of us, that he took on flesh and dwelled among us, that he suffered in our midst, and then he took all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our shame, all of our sin on the cross, so that that question can finally and fundamentally be answered Have you rejected us forever? No. Look at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this book of lamentations and I thank you for the um, difficult gifts that it might give us. Most of all, the permission, Lord, to pour out our hearts like water before you. The permission, Lord, to pray to you, remember, Look, see, pay attention to us. We thank you, Lord, that your word, the word of God, opens a space for us to lament. And I pray for us, wherever we are individually in our own stories related to grief, that you would meet us in that grief. And Lord, that you would help us live with an open question. But I also pray, Lord, that as we move towards Holy Week, as we remind ourselves what our redemption costs, that you would draw our eyes and our hearts to the cross and that you would remind us that your answer to humanity is yes and amen, amen. That you love us, that you pursue us, that you died for us and that you want us to turn to you. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.